Genesis chapter 37, uh, beginning with verse 1. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bela and the sons of Zippah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel, that is Jacob, loved Joseph more than his other sons because he was a son of his old age. And he made him a richly ornamented, a richly, uh, ornamented robe for him. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him, and they could not speak a kind word to him. And Lord, we ask your blessing upon this scripture reading today. We ask your blessing upon our journey as we begin to look at the life of this uh, significant man and learn the lessons you have for us from the life of Joseph. Now give us open hearts and open minds to hear your word. In your name we pray, amen. Well, the story of Joseph is one of the most major stories of the Old Testament. The last half of Genesis is about four men. Abraham being the one God called to begin the, the, uh, the nation of Israel, the Jewish nation, to begin the Hebrew world and, uh, through the offspring of Abraham and Sarah. His son, then Isaac, the son of promise, is the second man of the last of Genesis. His son, Jacob, is one, and the fourth one is his son, Joseph. I think it's interesting to note that the story or the account of Joseph's life takes up more than any of the other three, even Father Abraham. And so it bears a good, hard look at the lessons we can glean from the life of Joseph. There are, there are a number of components in living a, Christ, a successful Christian life. One of them is that we are connected with God in the right way. We have repented of our sins. We have accepted Jesus into our heart and life. We pray and communicate with God and seek God's will and way, and we do our best to obey His commandments. That's the first component in, being, in living a successful life to God. I tried to preach about that context in the summer, the, the summer Sundays as we looked at how Jesus told us we ought to live. And we've kind of taken a vertical look upward and to see that we're connected with God and our lives align with the way God says they ought to be evidence of our faith and belief in His Son. But I want to take a shift this morning and begin to talk about the second component of living a successful Christian life here. And that is how we act, react, and respond to people around us. Because the fact of the matter is, if we keep victory in our hearts, we have to be successful at navigating what life and people bring to us. And the fact of the matter is, there are many people who really lose their way with God because they can't get around or get beyond what people have done to them. Our life brings them. While we talk about God's love invading our hearts and Christian love permeating from our lives and all that happens and all that does happen is a part of Christian living. The fact of the matter is people are a great hindrance to us. And while they do not seek to be the tool of the enemy, the enemy uses what people do, what people say, what life brings us to create a great roadblock in our success in living for God. And so this morning I want to begin talking about Joseph. For if there was anybody in the Old Testament, anybody in the Bible that had people do more stuff to him, it is this guy we call Joseph. You know the framework of the story, but in case uh, it's been a while since you've thought about it or read about it, let me go ahead and set the stage for you. Jacob was the father. He was a very wealthy man. 
Jacob had 12 sons, although for most of the story he had only, only 11, with Joseph being the youngest. And we've read that Jacob did something no parent should ever do. He has, he has identified Joseph as his favorite of the 11 sons. And boy, the other 10 didn't like that. And because of this uh, favored relationship, Jacob made Joseph a coat of multicolored fabric. We call it a, a coat of many colors. And by the way, in the ancient world, bright colors were a sign of wealth. And when Joseph threw that thing on his back and walked downtown, it was as if he had a neon sign on his back saying, I am somebody. And the ten brothers that never had a coat like that made didn't like it. Joseph would certainly exacerbate the whole situation when Joseph would have dreams and he would be quick to wake up and tell his brothers, I had a dream last night. We were all binding wheat in the field and all of a sudden my stalk of wheat stood upright and all of yours bowed down to him. And that didn't breed much harmony with Joseph and the boys. And Je Je Joseph would have another dream and tell them that. Uh, the Bible said that, and we've read it this morning, that when Joseph was out around the brothers and he saw some, them doing something he knew the father would be not pleased with, he was quick to go home and tattletale on them. By the way, nobody likes a tattletale, even from thousands of years ago. And you put it all together, we have read this morning, the brothers hated Joseph. In fact, they hated him so much they could not say, they could not even say one kind word to him. And the story begins. Well, the ten brothers were off tending to the father's herds and flocks. He had extensive animals and, and extensive herds, and they had sought to find pasture land. And one day Jacob said to his son Joseph, why don't you go check on your brothers and see how they're doing? Joseph did that. He went to the place they were supposed to be, but found them gone. Began to wander around in the field. I wonder, why didn't Joseph go back home? It would have sure changed the course of his life for this moment. But he didn't do that. In fact, a man saw him and said, who are you looking for? What are you doing out here in the middle of nowhere? He said, I'm looking for my brothers and my father's herds. And the man said, I heard them say, they're, they're, I saw them go this way, and they're going to the town of Dothan. Not Alabama, the other Dothan in the Bible. And as Joseph headed off that way, the Bible says the brothers saw him. One of them said to the other nine brothers, here comes that dreamer. Their hatred boiled up against them. Another one of the brothers said, he's out here in the middle of nowhere. It's just us and him. Let's kill him and get rid of him. And they, uh, the others agreed to do so. When Joseph came near, they, they, they grabbed a hold of him. They would tear that coat off of him. They would actually throw a little uh, ram's blood on it and tear it up and mess it up and send it back home to Father Jacob, who would assume that his son had been attacked and killed by a wild animal. But the fact of the matter is they seized Joseph, ripped his coat off, and threw him in a hole in the ground, an empty water system, the Bible said. Uh, they sat down to eat a meal. And although the oldest brother was intending to let Joseph out before he could do that, as they were eating a meal, they saw another, uh, another group of people in the desert, a caravan of traders. And one of the brothers had what he thought, must have thought, was an absolutely brilliant idea. Let's not kill Joseph. Let's sell him as a slave to this caravan of traders. He is forever gone. We'll never see him again. We'll not be guilty of blood on our hands. And we get a little change in our pockets. And it seemed to be the perfect plan. They did that. And for a few pieces of silver, they sold Joseph. The caravan of traders we know took him directly to Egypt where he was uh, taken to the town square, put on the auction block, and sold as a slave in a public sale. It's amazing to me 
that the son of the most favored son of a wealthy man who had all of life ahead of him, who had his father's wealth behind him, who, who had such a privileged life, all of a sudden was now subject to living almost the worst life possible, that of a slave with no rights, no inheritance, no heritage, and a tough life at that. He was purchased by a man the Bible identifies as Potiphar, the captain of the army of, of uh, Pharaoh of Egypt. Somehow in that process, Joseph must have realized God was with him because he stayed, seems to stay pretty confident. And somehow, Pharaoh was not a, not a, not a foolish man. Pharaoh, uh, uh, Potiphar was not a foolish man. He must have realized God's blessing was upon this, and God blessed anybody that was kind to him. Potiphar began to give this slave boy more and more responsibilities and duties until it wasn't long until Joseph was running the entire operation for Potiphar. The Bible says that Potiphar only decided two things in his day when he would eat, and what he would eat, that Joseph attended to every other detail of the life of this wealthy and powerful and important man. You know the story, though, not only had Potiphar took sight of Joseph, but Potiphar's wife had as well. She had, on more than one occasion, tried to solicit him into an adulterous relationship, and Joseph would have no part of it. And, And one day, as Joseph was going about his normal duties, she realized, nobody's around but me and you. And she grabbed him by the arm and said, today, she grabbed him by the shirt sleeve and said, today is the day. And the Bible says that Joseph so strongly desired to get away from her that he literally ran out of his shirt and left her holding it in her hand. I I often say at this time in the story, the Bible says we are to flee from temptation. My friend, fleeing from temptation means If you have to run out of your shirt, you do it, and you get away from this woman. Our problem is we don't run from temptation. We are are enticed by it. We are are thrilled by it. We like to engage it in conversation and all those things and just be a part of it. And before you know, oftentimes we we have failed. The Bible says flee from temptation, and that is what Joseph did. But this was kind of a mean woman. Now, that's not in Scripture. That's my own assessment, by the way. She held that shirt in her hand all day long until her husband Potiphar came back home. And she said, look at this. That Hebrew kid you brought into our household tried to take advantage of me when nobody was there, and I screamed and he ran off, but he left his shirt as evidence. What are you going to do about it? And the Bible said the anger of Potiphar burned so deeply and so fiercely, and the reaction was so strong, he seized Joseph and and exercised his role as a slave owner and had him thrown in prison. And it was actually a, a hole in the ground under the palace, more descriptive of a dungeon. And Joseph must have realized, though, that God was with him. In fact, God was blessing everybody that was kind to Joseph, and the, the, the jailer was aware of that, and he began to give Joseph more and more duties and responsibilities, and it wasn't long till Joseph was running the whole prison. And the story is, the Pharaoh of Egypt threw a couple of his servants in the in jail for something they did and uh, Joseph took care of them and after a long time they began to they they were sad looking and and Joseph asked him what was going on and they both said we've had a dream it's the same dream and and uh, we don't know what it means and they told it to Joseph and God revealed its meaning and Joseph said this is what's going to happen in three days Pharaoh is going to lift you guys up out of this prison to the cupbearer you're going to be restored to your rightful place of work the it's not so good for the baker he's going to cut your head off And in three days, it happened just that way. And as they're leaving prison, Joseph said to the cupbearer, Remember me. And true to Joseph's fate, 
the cupbearer forgot all about him. Took a couple of years to go by. It wasn't long till Pharaoh had a dream. He couldn't understand it. He called the magicians of, of Egypt together. He threatened them with their lives because that's what it meant not, to not obey the king. He, he demanded they tell him what the, what the dream meant, and they couldn't do it, and it got tense around the palace. And finally the cupbearer remembered said, you know, a couple of years ago, you got mad at me and the baker. You threw us in prison. There's a Hebrew guy down there that was able to tell us what our dream said. It happened exactly as he said, and, and I would encourage you, if you want to, to try him. Joseph was summoned out of, the, out of the prison, you know, had to clean him up before he could go in the presence of the most powerful Pharaoh of Egypt. They had to put clean clothes on him and probably shave him, and finally he was cleaned up enough to go in. And, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, I understand you can interpret dreams. And Joseph said, you remember I can't interpret anything, but I know a God who can. And Joseph told Pharaoh, the, Pharaoh told Joseph the dream, and God revealed its meaning to him. And Joseph told him it was about the harvest. Land's going to produce great amount of crops for seven years, an abundance so great you've never seen anything like it. But don't get to feeling too good because those seven years are going to be followed by seven years of drought and famine. And the famine is going to be so intense and severe, you will forget your years of abundance. And then Joseph said, if I were you, I would appoint someone to manage the harvest so that when the need comes, you have food to survive. And in a story that can only be God-directed, Pharaoh said, no one in all of my kingdom can tell me what this story means. Since you have done that, I'm going to make you that person. And he elevated him to a place of second in command. He put a ring, royal ring on his finger. He put a royal robe on him. He, he said, you'll ride in the second chariot only to me. And he sent word out through all of Egypt, whatever Joseph says, if you don't do it, you're going to have to deal with me. I thought about the house of Potiphar when that letter came in the mail, what they thought, what Potiphar's wife must have thought. And Joseph becomes the, the, the king in that area, managing the harvest, uh, and would actually be the savior of his entire family. I'm amazed this morning to realize that Joseph came out of the prison not filled with anger, not overcome with bitterness, not so damaged that he was of no use to much of anyone. He came out of the prison ready to step into the role God had for him. As we like to say it in church, when he, God opened the door and Joseph was ready to walk right through it and assume a role that would actually save a remnant of the very people of God as he did his duty, and God blessed him. It's amazing to me to realize that Joseph was betrayed by his brothers. Those closest to him took the greatest advantage of him. He was living the life not as a favorite son of a wealthy man, but now as a slave, and true to his, to his duty, and true to his master, and true to God, and yet lied about and falsely accused by the boss's wife and thrown into prison when he hadn't done anything wrong. By the way, there was no parole in those days. When you got in prison, you either got out because the man in charge said you could get out, or you died and they carried you out. And Joseph then was forgotten by the one person he thought could help him. But finally, God raised him and elevated him. And it's amazing to me, through all the stuff of what people did to him, that Joseph comes on the scene a man ready to go to work for God. I see so many people in the church world today and the world itself that are so damaged by people. 
that sometimes it happens in the church, sometimes it happens around the church, sometimes the conflict is among our church brothers and sisters, and that doesn't mean it's not real, it is real. But I see so many people today that are so damaged by what life has done to them, they are of little use to God. When God says, I am above all, and higher than all, and in all, and able to give you victory in the midst of what people and life has brought to you. If God can forgive us of our sins, if God can break the power of sin in our lives, certainly God can give us enough of His Spirit to help us navigate what through, through life and, and what people do to us so that we keep victory in our hearts. I'm convinced if Joseph were alive today, and this was a modern-day story, Joseph would be a wealthy man because he would write a book about it. They would make a movie about him. He would be on every talk show, and he would be in every magazine and every tabloid because what a story it is. But I don't find anywhere where Joseph is telling his story. He is simply faithful to God and let God use him through all of that. I'm amazed that Joseph didn't say to Pharaoh when he got into his place of responsibility, Pharaoh, I want to tell you about that Potiphar guy. I want to tell you what he did to me. It's amazing to me that Joseph doesn't say to Pharaoh, don't ever get along with Potiphar's wife. It's amazing to me that Joseph doesn't talk about the cupbearer who now he ruled over and what, how the cupbearer had forgotten him and let him squander the prison for at least two more years. I'm surprised Joseph doesn't come out of the, out of the, out of the prison damaged and, and, and so full of bitterness and, and anger and, and hatred that he becomes like many of us get. I'm amazed Joseph came on the scene ready to be used of God and ready for the next step. I want to ask you this morning, what have people done to you? Maybe a family member, maybe a co-worker, maybe someone at church, maybe even somebody you meet in, in, in the course of life. What has life brought you? Uh, life is hard, folks. And it was for Joseph and it is for us. And even though Joseph lived for God, and even though Joseph uh, uh, stayed true to the principles of God in his life, it didn't make life any easier. I wish sometimes that God would give His people a, a, a pass on some of the stuff of life. I mean, in Monopoly, you get a get-out-of-jail-free card. I've often thought God ought to do that for us. I've often thought that wouldn't it be nice if God would, would, when we become a Christian, if God would encapsulate us in kind of a protective covering to shield us from the hurt, hurts and heartaches of life. But God's people still get sick. And God's people still face financial difficulty. Even when they paid their tithe, and God's people still face the wrath of a boss or a teacher or a classmate or a teammate or a neighbor or someone we have to associate with. Joseph lived his life faithful to God, but yet life was not any easier for him than it is for us. How in the world did Joseph thrust into, uh, into a, a, a pagan world keep God's victory in his heart and life? Well, Joseph has to be an incredible man. He has to learn somehow to forgive. He has to learn how to somehow get over the bitterness and anger and all of those things. But, but, but the reality of it is, how does Joseph live a right life in a wrong setting? And that really should be our goal as well. If God can save us, God can keep us. If God can save our sins, God can help us navigate through life. And though everybody is against us, it seems, even in the life of the great apostle Paul, he made people mad everywhere he went. They ran him out of town more times than they welcomed him. Faithful to God through it all. Well, not only 
was, did Joseph realize that life was hard or life was not easy even though he lived for God? He had to realize that events of life were so out of his control. We like to think that we have control of our lives, don't we? I've, I've lived in a, I've raised girls and, 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 and all those kinds of things, and I like to think I'm in control of my household. And you know, when they got to be adults, they, they were kind enough and smart enough to let me think I was. I realized pretty early on in that deal, there's not much control I have in life. Joseph didn't have any control over what happened to him. He begged his brothers not to, not to harm him, begged his brothers not to sell him, begged his brothers not to kill him, and, and, and they harmed him anyway. I'm sure he begged Potiphar not to throw him in prison. But Potiphar did anyway. He begged the cupbearer to remember him, but, but it didn't happen. Events totally and completely out of his control. Events were out of his control, though, but not out of God's. And Joseph realized probably the only thing he could control was his attitude and his actions and his reactions and his response. I've spent so much of so much effort and time over the years trying to trying to get in control what happened to me that was that was out of control and I failed to focus on me to realize God's got this under control. God knows what he's doing. In fact, God even takes the bad things in our life and makes them into good for those people who love him and are called according to his purpose. The Bible says the enemy tries to defeat us, and the enemy tries to destroy us, and the enemy does all these kinds of things, but it's not an obstacle to God. He's able to weave himself through all of that, and the hand of God becomes so evident when we can look back. All Joseph realized he could control was himself, and that has to be the key. Anger didn't take root in his life, although I'm sure he got mad at times, and, and, and bitterness didn't take root in a hold in his life, although I'm sure he had to be angry and bitter, and discouragement did not, did not move next door even though he had to be discouraged, and even though he had, must have had all the negative emotions we have, none of them stayed to live. They were just passing through on their way to somebody else because Joseph was in control of himself, and Joseph had an unwavering trust in God. It's all he had, but let me remind you, it's all he needed to have, and God was able to work in his life and God's plans for Joseph prevailed in spite of what everybody else did to him. And how in the world could Joseph, the only Christian in Potiphar's house, stay focused on God? How, how in the world could Joseph, the only Christian in prison, stay connected to God? How could, how could Joseph, the only Christian in the palace, the only Christian in the government, the only Christian at work, the only Christian, the only man focused on God, it would seem, at the time. How could he stay tr straight and true to God? Because he trusted God with his life. He trusted that God was overall and, and bigger than life experience. He trusted that God had a plan and God's will will be accomplished in spite of what people do to us. He trusted God with his life. And sometimes when people do things to us, we say we trust, but we act like we don't. And we say we trust, but we take actions that would indicate we're really trying to help God through this and not trust Him as well. I learned a long time ago that God really does not need my help to accomplish His will. God needs me to stay in the center of where He puts me, in the center of His will, no matter what else is happening, and God will do the rest. I've, I've learned that God doesn't need me to get back at somebody. Listen, folks, they might get away with it on earth, but there's a day coming where they're going to stand before God like all of us, and He is not going to be fooled. 
I've learned that God does not need me to seek revenge and seek retaliation. Leave all those things in the hand of God. Joseph seemed to be able to have an ability to do that. It has to be because he kept his eyes fixed on Jesus or God at this time. And if, we, if we're theologically correct, he kept his eyes fixed on God and God led him through. And I want to say the same thing that was happening in Joseph's life is true in our lives as well. It doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean it's enjoyable. But ultimately, God is going to prevail and God is going to bless those who stay true to Him in the midst of whatever life brings us. We are so, at times, as Christians, we are so affected by our, our setting. And although we say we don't, we are so affected by our setting. Where we work where we go to school, where we live, who we rub shoulders with. We're so affected by all of that, and so easy to, it's so easy to open the door to being angry. and I mean really mad. It's so easy to open the door to being bitter. I'll tell you, there's a lot of people that have used to go to church that are not in church this morning because of something that happened with other people, maybe even in the church, and they, they let anger and they let bitterness become a major factor in their life and motivator in their life instead of letting God lead. Joseph was a man who was able to live faithfully for God in the midst of great, great uh, obstacles and certainly a great anti-Christian world. I wonder if we could stay true to God if we were the only one we knew that was a Christian. Joseph didn't have, Joseph didn't have a church to go to. He didn't have a, he didn't have a scripture uh, Bible as we have it. He had the law, but not, no evidence that he actually had possession of that. Joseph didn't have 24-hour Christian TV going on and around-the-clock uh, uh, music programs and, and preaching programs. Joseph didn't have any of the opportunities we have. And yet he was able to live a Christian life, it seems. He's the only one for much of his adult life. If God can do it for Joseph, God can do it for you and I. Here's the summary of Joseph's life. He was loved and then hated. He was favored and then abused. He was betrayed but yet rescued. Promoted, then imprisoned. Slandered. But, but eventually praised, forgotten, and then elevated him. And he was so focused on God that one writer has said adversity didn't, heart, didn't harden him, and prosperity didn't ruin him, and temptation didn't destroy him, and imprisonment didn't embitter him, and promotion didn't even change him. He was who he was regardless of what was taking place. And he lived a faithful, effective life for God. So much so that when his brothers finally found out at the end of the story, you know what Joseph said to his brothers? I think I'd have been tempted to say, you sorry guys, what in the world were you doing? Joseph said this, what you intended for bad, God has made good. And what you intended for harm, God has made into a blessing. And Joseph even had such an awareness of God in his life that he even said to his brothers, you didn't send me here, God sent me here ahead of you so that I could preserve your life. Well, how did Joseph stay true to God in a, in a non-Christian world? First of all, Joseph had to have had an experience of redemption, however you call it in Old Testament times. He had to be, he had to have settled some questions in his mind and his heart about Jesus, he, about God. He had, to, he had to accept what God had for him. And, and the Old Testament version of repentance 
sometimes that's a stumbling block for us. We really haven't repented and got the sin issue and allowed God to break the power of sin in our lives and to deal with the sin issue in our lives. Joseph must have had an experience of repentance that set him on a, on a road towards God. Secondly, Joseph kept his focus on God. What we tend to focus on is so critical in our surviving what life and people do to us. We stay fo- Joseph seemed to stay focused on God. And though they lied about him, you ever been lied about? Though they slandered him, ever been slandered about? I know everybody here has had someone that slandered you. Ever been betrayed by those closest to you? Maybe even abused, maybe rejected. Have you ever been forgotten? Joseph, through all of that, seems to keep his focus on God and what he chose to see. And Joseph allowed God to direct him. Joseph lived with a confidence in God. Joseph chose not to live on the past and not to let anger and bitterness take hold, but to trust God. He was experienced in repenting. He kept his eyes on God. He allowed God to direct him. He had confidence in God, though at times it seemed God was not near. And he chose not to live in the past. And what a miracle God has brought to him. As the hand of God wove all these things into his good, Charles Spurgeon was a famous preacher of yesteryears. He was a, a, a model preacher in many ways. Here's what Spurgeon says about this. I'm going to read it to you. He points out that there was a chain of circumstances in Joseph's life that had to happen in a particular way in order for the story to make, take its place as it did. So he offered a long series of questions. Why did, Joseph, why did Jacob want to send Joseph to check on the brothers? Why were Joseph's brothers not there in a different place? Why did the Ishmaelite traders come by at that moment? Why were they in the mood to purchase a slave in the middle of the desert? Why were they going to Egypt and not somewhere else? Why did Potiphar purchase Joseph? Why did Potiphar's wife have designs on Joseph? Why were the baker and cupbearer thrown in prison when Joseph was there? Why couldn't Pharaoh remember his dream? Why didn't the cupbearer remember Joseph? Spurgeon points out, and hear me, Spurgeon points out that every single one of these seemingly unconnected events had to happen in a particular way, in a particular time, in order for Joseph to be in the right place at the right time to be used of God to save his family. I want to encourage you this morning, stay focused on God, though life seems maybe like it's in a mess, maybe like it's falling apart, maybe, it, maybe it's difficult, stay focused. And one day we too will see the hand of God weaving through the stuff of life to put us in a place at the right time, at the right moment, to step through the open door and to be used of God for a greater good than just Himself. That's the story that really capsulates this man. How did Joseph live for God in the midst of a pagan environment? He did it because he knew God personally and because he kept his eyes focused on God, because he didn't listen to others. He had confidence in God and trusted in Him. Well, I read this week a story of a modern-day Joseph. It's it's, It's from a man named Edward Thomas. And in 1948, Edward Thomas joined the Houston Police Department. That's not a big deal in itself. 1948. Except that Edward Thomas was an African-American man. And the first African-American 
to be recruited to join the Houston Police Department, 1948. But by the way, Rosa Parks didn't choose to sit in a specific seat for seven more years that brought to the format. Dr. Martin Luther King didn't really step on the stage in the civil rights deal for almost 20 years afterwards. 1948, Edward Thomas became the first African-American police officer for the Houston Police Department. He couldn't enter the police building through the front door. He couldn't enter the duty room to hear the, or, or the orders of the day because he was not allowed. He stood in the hall and answered roll call. He couldn't eat in the cafeteria in the police building where everybody else could. He couldn't drive a police car. In fact, he could not even arrest a white person. He could only detain them and call ahead and hope somebody came. They usually didn't. And perhaps the most shocking thing of all, when Edward Thomas got in a dangerous situation and called for backup, no one ever came to help him. They gave him, a, six, they gave him a, a, a beat that was six miles in length and a very wide swath of the roughest part of the city of Houston. And he would be there with no help, with no backup. In fact, he said, it seemed like everybody wanted me to fail. He said that he knew that his white supervisors were watching him with a fine-tooth comb, and he knew that if he ever stepped out of line in any way, they would use that against him and maybe even fire him. One time, he was reprimanded for helping for helping a white meter maid, that's somebody that takes coins out of a parking meter, to, she asked him to help her get through a construction site because she was afraid of the construction workers, and he did that successfully and was reprimanded for talking to a white woman. Right here in America, folks, it's hard to believe. He said that he thought if he was ever out of uniform, he would get in trouble. And so he was meticulous in his dress. He wore his hat always, even after you didn't have to wear a hat. And God blessed this man. And little by little by little, he began to gain some confidence in his, in his beat. Six miles long, he walked it two times a day. And he began to focus on the kids. And he began to not slap the kids around and, and, and do things to them unjustly as the white officers had done. He said that, he said that the, 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 the African-American people didn't trust him because he was a policeman. And the policemen didn't trust him because he was African-American. He was in a world all of his own, but a man who kept his eyes on God and did what was right. And it wasn't too long till they gave him a car to drive, but they warned him, if you ever wreck this car, you better pin your badge on the seat and run because you'll not survive. Edward Thomas stayed the course. Edward Thomas did what was right. Edward Thomas didn't get angry. Well, maybe he did get angry, but he didn't keep it. He didn't hold a grudge against those he didn't realize that they were responding out of ignorance and prejudice and all those things. Maybe he, re he realized that, but he didn't let that get the best of him. He was, he was so thrilled to be a police officer that he did his task, did his duty, kept his eyes focused on the job, and trusted God. By the way, Edward Thomas is the longest-serving police officer in Houston, 66 years. In fact, he is the most respected and, and the most revered officer that has ever worn a Houston Police Department badge. When he could no longer walk a beat, they, he asked to, to stay on and to be, have a, a desk job. And he, became the, he worked a security desk at a, at a police uh, uh, impound center into his 90s. And when he retired, they named the Houston Police Department headquarters the Edward Thomas Police Department in the city of Houston.
Life is not hard, but God rewards those who stand faithfully for Him. And I want to challenge you this week to stop looking just at what people have done and start looking to God like we've never had, had before and to have confidence in God. He's large, He's in charge, and He knows what He's doing. And listen, I've learned a long time ago, God doesn't need my help to, to navigate through life. He's capable on His own. He just asks me to be faithful and to follow Him and to serve Him. If Joseph can live a Christian life in the midst of a pagan society, folks, you and I can too, because we have the same God. And while our world is not perfect, we're headed to a perfect one, and God will have the last say. And may God bless the story of Joseph in these studies we have in the next few weeks. And may each one of you, as well as myself, be encouraged. It's God's way that matters, folks. It's not what people have done life has brought. It's God's way that matters if we really have repented, and if we keep our focus on God, and if we have confidence in God, and if we simply refuse and shut the door to anger and bitterness and discouragement taking root in our hearts, it won't. And we can control ourselves, our attitude, in the midst of a life that sometimes spins out of control, and God will help us. I say thank God for Joseph. I say thank God for Edward Thomas that would share his story, and the fact that God always prevails with the right. And may we be encouraged today at the word of the Lord. And everybody that's here today, would you say amen? amen. At least we can be, uh, say that as, as we're at the close of the service. Let's stand this morning, bow our heads for prayer. Our Father, we are thankful today for your word. I'm thankful that your word is not so obscure and so uh, distant that I have a difficulty finding my way to connect my life with it. I'm, I'm uh, amazed and marvel at the relevance of your word. And the fact that it was written thousands of years ago by about people, in this case, someone that lived in that time frame, I'm amazed that it relates to my life as well. Help us this week, Lord, to have more confidence in you, to live with a greater sense of confidence, though that all around us might be crumbling and falling. We have you to lead us and guide us and help us. May we take the truth of this service to heart, and may we let it revolution our lives this week. We love you today. We're thankful for your goodness to us. We're thankful for your help even when we fail. And we ask you to guide us and direct our lives in all things. And we give you praise for your great goodness to us. In your name we pray. Amen.